and welcome to the Anarchist Book Club with Danny Evans and me, Jim Yeoman. This episode is something a little different, a recording of a live event which we held in Liverpool in December 2021 with Joe Glanton, discussing his recent book, Veteranhood, Rage and Hope in British Ex-Military Life, which is published by Repeater. Veteranhood is a fantastic book, poignant, witty and angry, as well as highly readable. We wanted this event to be as open as possible, with a couple of readings from Joe and questions from ourselves, but mainly letting the conversation run through the audience. As a live event, some of the sound quality isn't great throughout, but we hope that you can put this to one side and find this episode as interesting and as fun as we did at the time. Welcome to this book launch of Veteranhood by Joe Glanton. We are uh, Danny Evans and Jim Yeoman. Uh, we were very pleased to be asked to put on this event with Joe in the first city of Liverpool in this lovely sort of art deco sort of surroundings here. We've got Ellie here from Repeater with uh, lots of copies of Veteranhood. So if you don't have a copy of it, I assume that you can come and buy it. Yeah, I, I, I reckon Joe might sign it for you. If you're lucky. Maybe. Yeah. So uh, <laughs> what we're going to do is a format, it's pretty loose. Joe's going to read a passage from the book. We're going to start with a couple of questions, but really we'd like it to be quite open. Um, people can, you know, we'll, we'll open the floor up quite early and then kind of intersperse anything that we would like to as well. I'm quite keen on like comments as well as questions. People can just join in the discussion. Um, don't know if you guys think so. Just yeah, same. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, not not particularly formal. Don't feel kind of you know restricted by it, but um, try and be polite with one another. Don't be uh, don't be annoying. Yeah, I think, that, I think that's probably it. It's my wonderful intro. <laughs> so uh, yeah, off you go, Joe. Okay, a reading from the the preface. I'm going to avoid doing the Irish accent because I'll get beaten up by Maeve afterwards. <laughs> Two men have appeared in front of me. They are in hot blood, tails up, looking for confrontation. One is small and gnarled. One is younger, bigger, a tattoo up his neck. Probably King Billy riding a poppy. It is autumn, and I am in Loyalist Belfast, where every day is Remembrance Day. Gnarled gestures over his shoulder to the dank boozer he has emerged from. Are you filming the pub? I point up at the Union Jacks, Parachute Regiment flags and RAF roundels fluttering over Sandy Row. The adrenalised arsehole, soldiers say, flutters rapidly between the diameter of a 5p and a 50p. I am around about there. The flags, lads. Why are you filming the flags? We're making a film. My German cameraman is filming nearby, oblivious to the fact we're about to get kneecapped by the UVF. Documentary team missing remains found in some minging peat bog. All I had wanted was footage of flags in a corner of the world where everything, as it turned out, had flags hanging off it. There, on the cusp of abduction, it seemed like a good time to play the world's most grating card. It's about veterans, lads. I'm a veteran myself. (laughs) Brazen, but the veteran signalling lands. They do not even press the question. They just accept it. Do I look that veteranish? <laughs> oh, I crack on then. Smiles all around. Neck tattoo shakes my hand and they go back to their pints. My kneecaps live to creak on. Another legacy of army days. 
Of course, it is perfectly possible that they were in no way connected to a paramilitary. Just locals guarding their corner of a tough town. But that is the kind of doomed scenario which flashes through your head sometimes in a nose-to-nose -nose like that. At least I kept my flapping internal, just like the mob, the army, taught me. About six months later, I sit facing 20 young Afghans in a freezing room in Kabul. I've spent the week riding around the Badlands in a Toyota Corolla. Nearly 15 years after I came here as a soldier, I made it out onto the, that fabled place, fabled place we call the ground, outside the wire of a military base. Unarmed and with no air support, we travel dressed as Afghans, careening around in Kidnap Central in a Corolla, occasionally in an Afghan National Police Humvee. We are hunting CIA death squads called Zero Units, speaking to their victims and, on one occasion, getting lost in Taliban territory. It turned out that 15 years on, the US and British trained ANP were still cowboys. Yet somehow, in the quiet moment when the hardest work has been done, the young Afghan peace activist sitting opposite me seems more intimidating than the IEDs, the Cliff Edge Roads, or according to the Trump-backing, anal-fixated ex-SAS soldier who had run our hostile environment course, the unwavering certainty of being bummed if captured. The activist asks Mr. Joe how many Afghans he killed when he was a soldier. Always that question. South London, numb faced at a house party, line upon line racked up on the table nearby. It is that time of night when there is, in this non-smoking house, we're all smoking in the kitchen. A group of Italian goths are dancing weirdly on the tiles nearby. A person of unserious politics, functionally liberal, performatively left-wing, has announced to me that people join the mob because they are racists, because they want to kill. The drugs have cooled my blood, so, rather uncharacteristically, I try to explain the complex drivers of military enlistment, rather than just tuning this latest ignoramus in like a crackling radio. I could go on. Incidents like these have been racking up for some time. The fact is, like any group of people, veterans are a vessel into which people pour assumptions and half-truths. So, before we burden you with our assumptions and half-truths... <laughs> Um, the obvious question, Joe, what was, what was your purpose in writing this book? Um, veteranhood was, was bubbling for about 10 years, getting that way, and it took various forms in my mind over that period. At one point it was a, a kind of radical history of veterans, their contribution to struggles um, over the last 500 years. It was big, a big scope, and I'm not a historian, unlike you guys. Um, and so it was a bit of a stretch, um, uh, but yeah, it ended up being a kind of, kind of gonzo story of the last, that stuff as well, the historical stuff, but the last 10 years of experience of being a veteran in this country and speaking to hundreds of other veterans over the years and trying to formulate something, um, a kind of better way of being a veteran, because a lot of us who are what I call critical veterans in the book looked at mainstream veteran identity and it's, it's anger and it's bitterness and the kind of militarism that people internalise and we're trying to find a different way to do things. But there, if there were two, the two catalysts which really made me um, email Repeater or DM Repeater and get in touch with Tarek and these guys were um, 2020, there was a, a veteran, a riot, a kind of fascist riot in Whitehall 
which had all the strangest people in the world. There was the kind of NF, the old creaking NF National Front guys. There was the football lads, but then there was loads of military people in berets and medals coming down to defend statues. It was a, a kind of counter-protest to the BLM uh, thing at the height of that last year. And so it, that was a key thing, seeing those guys coming down and, and thinking about what they thought and what brought them there. But then also a couple of weeks later, Keir Starmer announced a kind of reinvigoration of something called the Labour Friends of the Armed Forces, which is this kind of, um, a kind of stage prop of the Labour right. Like, it's one of the worst friends of things that Labour has, and there are some bad ones. Um, <laughs> but it, it was kind of about, it's about portraying Melt, basically, very war-horny liberals and Blairites and nativists in Labour as kind of close to the military. And he announced this invigoration, but there was, there was something he said, um, and uh, I, I forget the exact terms, but it was like, post-Corbyn, um, Labour will be a welcoming place for military people again. And it seems that those two things, those two images, captured the kind of mainstream view of what veterans are and what they think. And it really pissed me off, because I know loads of veterans who are from all eras, from World War II to today, who are, who are on the left. However you formulate that, I mean, you know, social democrats, anarchists, communists, different kinds of socialists. Um, and I wanted to contest that narrative and um, try and, not ventriloquise, but interview those people, talk to them and give them a platform, uh, as well as, as speak to my own experience of being a veteran. I think that that last point you made there about not wanting to, to ventriloquise and not wanting to speak for people, I think, runs through the book. I mean, the passage that you open with there, those three encounters, really those three characters, which could stand in for many, many more, I'm sure. Mm-hmm. Um, examples, you know, a lot of the book is you and or other people that you're talking to kind of negotiating all these things that society expects of a veteran. And what I think is one of the, the real strengths of it is that you don't, you don't return to that with like the Joe Glenton manifesto, how to respond, how does that, you know, what, how did you call him that, that person of unserious politics saying, you know, you're, you're just a brutal murderer. You know, you, you're not telling that person necessarily what to think, but you're asking them to listen. And I guess that that's, that for me is what came out of Rattling Hood. Was it a conscious decision not to have that sort of, here's what I think and here's what you should take away from it? Yeah, no, it was a conscious decision. Um, and I, I mean, I kind of, I talk about the different strands of veterans politics and a lot of people come out go into the military and they're on the right and that's part of the appeal of the military for them um, and others internalise that and, and become that but what I'm, I'm saying is that it's not the whole story I'm not saying that there aren't people who become right wing in the military or join the military because they're right wing but there is something else there and I'm very familiar with it I've become very familiar with it over the last 10 years um, through organisations like Veterans for Peace um, which isn't a left wing organisation at all they were taught, one of our best organisers was a Tory but there are lots of veterans who are on the left. And I just wanted to, um, to, to speak to them and present, present some other narrative and also put it in a, try and put it in a kind of historical context. And I think the idea that veterans are all one thing is quite recent. It's probably the last 15 years. We can get into that. Um, a good example, actually, is it's someone like Paddy Ashdown. And we can debate how good a liberal Paddy Ashdown is. But here's a guy who was in the Royal Marines, who was in the Special Forces, who was elected in a garrison town, Yeovil, again and again and again. 
So there is space, even in the liberal sense, even in the shallow sense of left mm. politics, um, for that. And when you actually look at it and you go back, you know, 100 years ago or 50, after the, the World Wars, for example, it was absolutely normal. I mean, it wouldn't even be remarkable for someone to be a socialist and a veteran. And now that isn't the case. Now it's kind of surprising mm. that someone, you'd be like, oh, wow, what, like, why are you at this anti-war demo? Why are you at this solidarity thing you're a veteran and it's, it's kind of shocking it's jarring for people i wanted to talk about why that transition took place i want to talk about it myself but i also wanted other people to talk about it so a lot of the book became accessing these guys who i've met over the last 10 years mm -hmm. uh, and speaking to them and, and trying to get them to talk about the, the big issues in in being a veteran like the big the big things and, and just offer them a, a bit of a space to talk about that and try and formulate an identity, a, a left-wing veteran identity that isn't just about getting up every day and wearing your medals in the bath and having breakfast in your beret and being obsessed, being obsessed. Mm -hmm. The idea that, that being a veteran isn't in and of itself a personality. That mm -hmm. There is something beyond that and you can be a critical and thinker and a person who's interested in the world around them. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't all have to flow from this identity of being ex-military. Like there's, more, there's more to it than that. And they're out there. They're out there. Well, there's lots to get stuck into there. I, but I think, you know, like as Jim said, we want to try and keep it as open as possible. So does anyone have any like questions they want to jump in with at this point? I've got one. Um, I know that the American military collate and publish kind of demographic information about the makeup of their own forces, right? And when they release that, there's a very disproportionate number of, of African Americans, of uh, people with a, a Latino heritage, and proportionately fewer with a white background. But I don't think that information is collated or published by the British military. Mm. Am I right? And if I am right, why do you think that might be the case? Yeah, it's a good question. As, as I understand it, the last, um, I look at those figures occasionally, the US Army, like the British Army, is still vastly, by the majority, is white. Um, um, I think you will probably find in the, the, it's an interesting one, in the bits of the military where lower educational standards are required, the combat arms, I imagine that um, black people and Latino people will be overrepresented there. I think it's slightly different here. Um, where it's people from uh, white working class kids who are overrepresented um, in the combat arms, in the team, the bits that do the killing, um, and so on. So, it, so it's slightly different. Um, there was another part to the question. What was it? Well, why, if we don't publish that information, why don't we publish it? But I think you've just given us the answer yeah. because the people that are recruited to do those jobs are the ones that can't get opportunities yeah. for stable and. Uh, Definitely, yeah. skilled employment in their local areas and the army then is a way out yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's definitely true it's definitely true and the, the military frames itself always frames itself as this kind of engine of social mobility and it's but i mean i think the really striking example here is the um it's places like harrogate which is where they train in this we're unusual in this country it's like us the republic of congo and north korea are recruiting at under 16. yeah which has all kinds of implications because when um at the UN countries go say North Korea you should stop recruiting kids North Korea literally say and I've looked at the documents 
literally say what the British do it. Yeah. Um, and it's, it's a problem here. And it's that cohort, the guys who join at 16, 15 and a half, 16, that they're overrepresented over in all the bad things, all the bad metrics. So like homelessness, um, alcoholism, drug abuse, prison, etc. all that stuff, that cohort particularly. And those kids are particularly, mostly going to the teeth arms. So they're mostly going into the infantry, these, these young kids from, um, from sink estates, wherever they are in the country. I always say the North, but also the South West, um, mm -hmm. Plymouth and places like that, they're particularly overrepresented. Um, so there is, there is a, a, a powerful and quite bleak class dynamic playing out there with military recruiting in this country. Like it's slightly different to the US model, obviously. Casting, if you cast your mind back to the first Iraq war, I think, there was a, an American military column that got hacked up and they took some prisoners and one of them was a, I think he was a Corporal Miller that they then put on the TV and said, why have you come to Iraq to kill all these poor civilians? And he just sat there and said, I just fixed broke stuff. Yeah. And you could tell that he was a, completely and utterly out of his depth. The reason that he signed up and turned into a war in Iraq that he had no stake in and no grasp of it, he was just, he went to learn to be a mechanic, I presume. Yeah, yeah. And that then made me think, why would it be different here? And it's yeah. plainly not. Yeah, it's not. I mean, there's no, um, like people aren't, I think there's a tendency, I think some people go in for ideology, I always describe this as a spectrum, the economic and the ideological. Some people go in because they really want to be, particularly in the elite units, I really want to be a Royal Marine. I really want to be a para. I really want to be an officer. Um, but I think on the whole, most of the, anecdotally, most of the guys I joined with were there for a job and that's it. And there's not really any, certainly they don't really have any deep understanding of international relations. Why would you? <laughs> if you're coming from that background. Uh, but also there's no forum to d discuss that. There's no Oxford debating society in the army. And those are precisely the, the kids that they look for. Um, you know, they, they trade off that demographic. Do you think, I mean, I'm going to go back to this um, obnoxious guy at the party because I think, unfortunately, that's the person I'm probably most identifying with in, <laughs> in your book, in, the, in that opening passage. And I think at my worst moments of unthinking about the military is when I'm, for example, watching like a join the army thing on like advert on the telly. I'm like, why the fuck? Why would anyone do that? Like, why would anyone do that? And it's, it's, you know, do you think that there is a thing on the left in particular, of, I guess, kind of putting on a degree of choice about people joining the army that they don't do with lots of other working class, you know, decision making, yeah, yeah. where you know economics and being working class, you know, explain a lot of things, but clearly not for a lot of leftists like joining the army. Yeah, I think a lot of the the left are very good at kind of understanding this stuff, generally speaking. I think a lot of people lose their heads when it comes to the military. I mean, I don't want to be unfair, I don't want to say a lot, but there are particular sections of the left, particularly the middle class left, mm -hmm. who, who basically get around the military. They're into all this radical politics, but when it comes to the military, it's like a basically liberal perception of choice. And they overestimate the amount of agency involved. There are all kinds of forces which steer people towards the military from a, from a particular background. So I think it's almost like when I hear this stuff, I'm like, I just want the left to do what it does with all kinds of other things about the military and, and, and kind of understand that there are complex drivers. It's not always ideological. It's not always about choice. There are things which steer you in that way, particularly, let's put it in, particularly in places which where there have maybe in the past been 
thriving local economies which have been smashed, which Thatcher tried to lower in the 80s. So that's why large parts of the military recruit from the north of England or the southwest. Or, I mean, they recruit from all over, but, but communities which have been steamrolled in the last 40 years. Um, and I think sometimes that's that analysis for some reason, and we maybe I'm still trying to figure out what that reason is. For some reason, a lot of that nuanced and correct analysis that's applied to lots of other issues just doesn't happen for the military. And I think it's a problem. I think it's a problem. Because there have always been veterans on the left. Sometimes thousands, millions. You know, when you look historically, you look up to, up to the Second World War when people um, back Atlee and that stuff. Uh, and it's important to talk about why that isn't the case now. Part of it's about conscription versus a professional army. These are two, uh, conscript army is very different from a professional army. A professional army is probably more ideological in some ways than everyone being forced to go and going grudgingly, which is what I go into in the book when I talk about the history, a potted history. What would have been the whole book at one point has now been compressed into a chapter. Um, and I know I've gone out of a historian, she cringed at my attempts to interpret history and kind of guided me. Um, but yeah, there's, there's some complex stuff going on there, but I think we need to be a bit more fair-minded, maybe, about why people end up in the ranks. Is, is there also like a problem of perception here, though? Because, um, like, like you say, there are there are some people on the left, say, who would who would take this attitude towards soldiery, mm -hmm. or like people who join the forces or whatever. Um, but the perception of the left as anti-army mm -hmm. is um, is applied to a much broader yes, yes, sway yes. of the left, right? Yeah. So is it something? Does it say something coming from the other side about like British militarism that because it's so like intertwined with ideas about remembrance, about respect, that in fact any kind of opposition to militarism is going to be taken as a lack of respect or or an unwillingness to remember yeah. and things like that. Yeah, there's a there's a, a kind of bigger process behind that which I talk about, which we have termed the militarization offensive, which is so that. The mid 2000s, the wars are going very badly, and no one really likes the wars. And I don't mean that generally the wars are unpopular. I don't mean by that like your nan has been reading Lenin on imperialism. <laughs> I mean that like, generally people are looking at the wars, and these kids who are quite well thought of are coming back with no legs, no arms, missing testicles, whatever. Uh, and there's there's that kind of that kind of anti like anti imperialism if you, if you want to call it that. Um, and I think the British establishment, the Labour government at the time, recognises this. Start to think about how to, how to, um, kind of push back the kind of anti-war feeling, and it starts to try and formulate a way to do that. And one of the expressions of this is a report called the Recognition of Our Armed Forces and Society Report, fronted by Gordon Brown. Um, and basically, what it's trying to do is conflate criticism of foreign policy with personal attacks on the troops. It's trying to like humanise them to such a degree and then place them in between gen a general criticism of the wars and, um, and conflate it with disrespect for the troops. And that's really where that comes from, um, this particular wave of it. And from that, like mid-2000s, that's when we see the, the move towards kind of turbo-remembrance and poppy fascism um, and all this stuff. And that's actually quite recent. Um, and it, it's interesting because I remember I joined in 2004 so just before this stuff started. And I talked to guys in the book who joined in the 90s, and no one liked squaddies. And understandably, because we're fucking assholes, to be honest, young lads with no, with no hair who wanted to fight everyone. Um, and we were not popular. We were not like a cult figure. 
in the way maybe we are now, a kind of sacred figure. Um, and that, in my estimation, emerges in the 2000s with this realisation in the, in the establishment. And when you look at the people who push that narrative, and a lot of it is expressed through Help for Heroes and these militarised charities, but when you look at the leading figures, you're talking about the, the Brown government of the day, um, Bryn Parry, who's an ex-rifles officer who founded Help for Heroes, and Tom Newton Dunn of The Sun. The Murdoch press is centrally involved in this, in kind of pushing back against a generalised kind of, not theoretical, but a generalised kind of anti-war feeling about Iraq and Afghanistan. So I think you, I try and speak to him in the book, but I think that's where you have to go back to if you're trying to pinpoint where this stuff has come from. And the remembrance stuff all emerged from there. Particularly, I mean, it's also, it just happened that the centenary period of the First World War there, so that was also, a, that four years was a period when this stuff was really pushed. It's when you get kind of turbo remembrance. Because I remember, I remember, you know, remembrance to me growing up was um, like a little old boy with his medals nursing a pint in the British Legion. There was none of this Diamante poppies on X Factor, Cheryl Cole. Yeah. <laughs> that's all new. And that, also, that's not, and that's kind of what I was trying to say. I did a thing with Double Down about, around remembrance. It's kind of what I was trying to say there that, that none of that fits with the original tone of remembrance was kind of insurgent. It was angry. Never again. Never again. The banners, they used to go down. They used to go down with pawn tickets from a, because they'd all sold their medals. And the guys, and they, the veterans started a riot in Whitehall and fought the police in Whitehall over demobilisation and lack of jobs and so on. So the original sentiments of remembrance are totally lost in this new wave of, of militarism. Um, and that's kind of what we're seeing. It seems to have tailed off a little bit. This year's remembrance was a little bit quieter in tone. But over that, the period of the centenary, it was really viciously reactionary and, and weird, to be honest. Even in, the, even in the framework of normal remembrance, it's supposed to be a funeral. Mm. Remembrance Day is supposed to be a funeral. The cenotaph is a tomb. It's supposed to be sombre and serious. Um, and that's, that was kind of lost for a couple of years. We'll see where it goes. And I'm not like, we shouldn't have remembrance. I, I mean, I think remembrance is an important event. I have no problem with it. I'll, as soon as it becomes a serious event again, I'll go down with my burying medals and, and probably do it. I don't really have a problem with the idea of remembrance. But the, sen the original sentiments have been lost. There's a question over here. Yeah, I, I think um, <clears throat> to me it seems like the, the really crucial uh, institutional feature of the harmony is the sort of like um, the hollowing out of the middle in that like there's people from really deprived backgrounds and then the super elite. Mm -hmm. So like massive over representation of like people from like elite private schools, um, stuff like that. And I think there is like a sense on the left of like all liberal left where there's two approaches. There's either a kind of ingratiating approach of lead friends of the armed forces of like, you know, sucking up to them and whatever. Or there's the sort of like, we hate and fear them, you know, don't want anything to do with them. But like the, the institution is still like at the top and who's controlled by mm -hmm. and as well more generally in the security state in the UK is dominated by ex-private school boys, old Etonians, stuff like that. Yeah. I, I grew up in um, uh, near Hereford Ooh. and there was like a lot of um, like SS types and that sort of stuff and like they, they were like, I, I, I met a couple through um, my friends who was a, in the army as well and they were like yeah they were all like went to like Eton and stuff like that and it was like their allegiances are very clear yeah, yeah. you know socially and like I don't think 
I think ideally, maybe the British army could move something like West Germany, or, you know, like West Germany, like post-Nazi army. That would be an ideal, a totally de detoxified, you know, army. But that would require basically a capturing of the state by the left <laughs> that wouldn't be allowed by yeah, yeah. a security state dominated by these people. No, I agree with that. I agree with that. Um, and we're not going to get anywhere electorally near power for a long time. Um, I suspect. I think I try and be fair to the army in the book, which grieves me. I try and be. <laughs> but I kind of had. I felt like I had to, but because um, there are like, if you look at the smart regiments, the guards, it's full of toffs. It's full of a guy with three surnames, and one of them's Windsor, who's like 479th in line to the throne. That's real. Um, but I think also there's, there was a period where I guess the democratisation of education, whatever you want to call it, more people had degrees. So I, for example, in the cause, which are less smart um, and less traditional, had like a, I had a Scouse troop commander, because it, just because he had a degree and he passed the officers kind of training board. I think at the, the people at the highest level, the people who get through all the way to the highest levels will generally be from the background mm. you're speaking about, because they kind of select out. Um, the people who don't take that box. Maybe they'll start doing that because the military at the moment is trying to um, frame it. So it's trying to kind of appear liberal. It's trying to attach this liberal veneer because of all kinds of internal crises. At the moment, it's particularly about uh, military sexual violence. Um, there's been a bunch of reports about that. So it's trying to appear more. And there's been a bunch of scandals about um, racism. Like the Parachute Regiment have a particular thing about having like um, posters of the Fauschenjäger, which is a kind of Nazi parachute. Mm -hmm with the 10 point code, which is like, women will be silent, and you will always keep your weapon clean. And it's this really weird stuff. We say it's kind of enemy worship, they take that on. So there's been a, a bunch of scandals about that. So at the moment they're trying to appear more liberal. I don't really think that will have any structural effect, it's just optics. Um, but yeah, no, you're right, you're right. In fact, it was an interesting, I don't want to go on about Corbynism because it's, it's dead and buried, but um, it was an interesting thing. My, my friends at Declassified UK um, did, a, did a piece about senior military figures, some still serving, and senior figures in the intelligence community briefing against Corbynism, quite openly saying there will be a coup, yeah. this will never happen, and so on, which I think really speaks to their kind of class alignment. Mm -hmm. I, I kind of want to bring it back, just to slide it off the British side, because it's my favourite pastime. <laughs> I, think, I think something that's really significant, because lots of the following figures in the British left were small or radicalised, Soldiers will never be normalised in Derry, but the fact that you can go into Derry and count 
very strong Republicans among your friends, and I think speaks to how you're able to articulate the nuances in the army. And like, I think it's amazing what you've achieved with the book. Cheers, mate. That's a rare accolade. I don't know. Yeah. It probably helps. Out. <laughs> it probably helps. I've been out drinking in Derry. Yeah. I've met people. Yeah. But but it is important, and, and these these so-called figures of the British left, who you know, kind of, and, and actually I can't wait for your Galden piece on the comparisons between the British military and sex work, and kind of how it's nuanced, right? So it's going to come out. But of course, all all work under capitalism is complicated and complex, and people yeah. have different motivations and different constructions and. That's something that people aren't prepared to talk about because it's much easier to sit there outside and go, it's all fucked. Mm. And actually, the more we challenge ourselves and the more we read these people's stories and actually get to know the motivations why, I think the kind of, even after the anti war movement, the numbers of uh, young men and women still joining the British Army is a failure of the British left to actually, well, what are we doing in these working class towns? Where are our alternatives? Yeah. I think it's very easy to sit in our side and go, oh, they're all fucked, they're all scum, they're all racist, or whatever. Yeah. What are, how are we looking at societies like creative and what are our access to jobs? So I think this is a brilliant intervention. Well done. Cheers, mate. Just to take it back to <clears throat> what you were talking about, the, the shift in remembrance of the reframing of remembrance. I always think back to like maybe, I don't know how long ago, maybe only as recently as five years ago, that suddenly there was this new narrative where the First World War was good now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And how much of this reframing of remembrance is actually a kind of, I don't know, a, a preparation for public opinion for whatever wars we have to come, you know? Yeah, definitely. Do you know what, I, I try and talk about it in the book, there's a, there's a sense that if Britain ever had a good war, if there's one good war, it was World War II. Personally, I think you can contest that and, and play with it and question it. But my sense is with the military and veterans is that we're expected to see all veterans and the military at all times through the prism of World War II, like wherever it is, as the one, t the one time, arguably, Britain's military was a moral force. And it was a radically, this is the, the mass conscripted army um, conscripted to fight fascism, like, and there's a sense I, I pick up on this all the time. It's almost like we're supposed to um, to imagine that pe the people kicking your nan's fucking door in in Derry, or or doing house raids in Iraq or Afghanistan, are basically the same people on some moral level, or maybe even a literal level, as the people who kind of stormed the beaches at Anzio, or um, or on D-Day, and it's just not, it's just not true. <laughs> but I think. The, the nostalgism for World War II inflects everything now. And we saw it with COVID, with Captain Tom, who also has a chapter. Um, <laughs> um, and all these, all these different things with Brexit, all of it is kind of filtered through the sepia prism mm. of World War II. And it's really bad. It's, it's bad in many ways, obviously, because it's just basically wrong. It's basically not factually correct. But also, it's, it comes it's like an appeal to emotion and nostalgia. It's not an appeal to reason. It's like... This is the defining, the one defining thing, the one defining war, the prism through which we should see everything. Because that one war arguably has a moral character, and none of the other ones do. And you can look, and I do look in the book, at what army is most like the army of today. It's definitely not the army of World War II. It could be the army of decolonization. I think our army is more like that. Or the army of uh, the Raj, or, or something like that. And I try, try and kind of address what it, what, which of the historical British armies is the current one most like. Mm. And the one it's least like 
that is a conclusion I come to. The one it's least like, it's furthest from, is the army of World War II, and yet we're expected to, to take that, to see Tommy Atkins today through that lens. You said, look, veteran others, you know, increasingly become associated with the rights since especially the end of World War II. But simultaneously, British foreign policy has been more associated with humanitarianism. So how do you kind of explain that paradox where you've got British foreign policy is more associated with supposedly, obviously, humanitarian uh, objectives? Yeah, veteran, but especially veterans that fought in those wars, are more associated with, with the right and that. Yeah. I think it's. I think partly it was about the management at the time. I think Iraq, to some degree, Afghanistan, to a much greater extent. Uh, the wars of the Balkans uh, were used to recondition the military as a kind of tool of foreign policy and give it this. It was. This is Blairite. It's. Li you know, there was a liberal management at that time. These were Blair's wars, and they framed those wars through the with the language of humanitarianism. I'm less so with Iraq. Iraq's a much harder sell, obviously. But they did that to some extent with Afghanistan and to some extent, I think, successfully framed it as being... Like, we actually thought... I'm not even fucking joking. We actually were like, we're going to Afghanistan to help brown girls go to school. Like, someone's actually internalised that to some degree. Not just from the military, because that was what was, kind of amb that was what was out there in the press. But we were going there to, to kind of help people. Um, and that's an easier sell, morally. Uh, but, it, uh, I mean, as we've seen as we saw with the pull-out of Afghanistan when it all came apart. It's just not true. I think the Tories, are, some, some Tories do kind of do that. Um, I, think, I think that responsibility to protect R2P shit is a popular, popular kind of argument. And certain people have also used it to try and recondition the military. There's a, there's a current in Westminster politics anyway, which is like, it's almost like give war a chance. Like, yes, Iraq was bad, but don't write off wars in the future. And actually, there was a report, it was by Tom, Tom Tugendhat, who's he was in the intelligence corps, awful, awful tough, he was a colonel, and, um, and Joe Cox. Joe Cox was a, also an interventionist, and, and they wrote this report about, it was, I can't remember the exact title, but I, looked, I read it, um, so I had to write a story about it, and was like, this is give war a chance. Like, don't let Iraq put you off war in the future, is the argument. So they've used that to also... They use that to get us into all that trouble, but they're also trying to use it to, to maintain the option, to keep it on the table uh, of military force in the future. And it will, like um, a lot of the smaller interventions now, Mali, Sudan, etc., are all framed through this, this lens of humanitarianism, a force for good. I think it's the Navy's motto and it's recruiting now, a force for good. Um, so that stuff is, is definitely going on. And it's, that's the kind of part of the fight back against at the generalised anti-war feeling of the, you don't want to see young lads coming home with no legs. Part of that, which makes it even more cynical, in my opinion, um, that they're trying to kind of justify the next war with um, reference to humanitarian intervention. Yeah, I feel weird asking a question to be honest because I've, I've read too many versions of this book. Um, <laughs> and I can't remember what's in the conclusion. But I think, like, we've had a conversation about this before about the idea that basically the Royal British Legion isn't kind of fit to serve veterans by any stretch of the imagination and that veterans basic in this country basically need their own kind of union. Now as a historian I come at that question like with some caution looking at what veterans unions have looked like historically. I mean if you look at Italy or Spain or um, Germany. Um, I, I, I would just like to know what would a veterans union look like? Would it be a political kind of organisation that would just function to serve material interests or would it be 
something that would be sort of the politics of it would be more sort of whittled down, if you know what I mean. Yeah, it's hard, and I, I recognise the, the the problem there is it's kind of like building another army. I think that's the sense. Um, and I've had some conversations this week with some other vets about some kind of the the NU at the National Union of Ex-Servicemen was the post-World War II one. Um, and maybe it's, maybe it's useful to go back to the foundation of the Royal British Legion is this like monolithic, unquestionable thing where the CEO gets paid like £150,000 a year and has a private car. So but the actual origins of the British Union were always, were in part radical and always contested because it was formed in the 20s out of four different organisations, some of which were tied to the Liberal Party, some to the Labour Party. The NUX was radical, it was like Bolshevist, and the background of that, its foundation is the, the Bolshevik Revolution. And then there were organisations like the, um, the Comrades of the Great War, which was backed by Lord Rothermere, which was fashion, was Freikorist mm -hmm. um, in its own way. And then there's the only one that still exists separately is the, um, the Officers Association, and you can imagine its politics. Um, but it was always kind of contested. There were these various different ex-servicemen's organisations and federations which were kind of vying, and some of them represented the working class, and you know they, had, they each had their, their class basis. Um, and that's where the, the Royal British Legion comes from. So it does have a, a hint of that. Eventually the, the left-wing ones were basically outmaneuvered by the establishment um, unions or federations. They didn't call them unions, funnily, um, and folded into what we now know as the RBL. But it's interesting that its origins were contested, there was friction, there was different organisations vying for different things. Um, what that would look like now is really hard, it's really hard. I had these conversations with a bunch of veterans in the last couple of weeks about what can we, how can we organise veterans on the left. Um, and it's hard to see because we, one of the key things immediately post First World War is there were issues to organise around like demobilisation, letting people leave the army was really slow and really badly managed. And people organised around that. Um, and it, that army was an army that was mass conscripted. There were millions of people under arms. And now we don't have that. So it's a different, when we're talking about these things, I think broadly the conclusion we came to is that, although it's a very seductive idea, I love the idea of loads of ex-squaddies driving a warrior or a Challenge 2 tank through the down the street. I fucking love it. I don't think it's, gonna, I don't think it's on the cards. So it's more about, I think, a network of veterans we can maybe, or one of the things in the book is the idea of preparing something, a framework for the next generation of veterans who, who come through. So they're not just lost like many of us were, atomised and lost. Um, so we've kind of lowered our sights a little bit. But the idea is, is yeah, in one way fantastic, but also it's really fraught because you have loads of angry people trained for violence. I mean, where does that end up? I mean, it could end up really badly. And also, as you, the right is dominant. Um, and there, are, there is lots of veterans' organisation on the right around anti-vax stuff, around kind of football lad stuff. There's a bunch of guys on one of the big, when they raided White City, pointlessly, because there's nothing really in White City anymore, a load of people raided White City around like um, COVID stuff, anti-vax stuff. There's a couple of paratroopers turned up. Um, so that stuff is happening. So I think really what we would be trying to do if we were to Think about a veterans organisation. It's like it's almost like counter extremism and it's demilitarisation. Um, yeah, because we, the danger of the Fry Corps stuff is is there, is there. There's all kinds of strange organisations knocking around which love wearing berets and medals and talking about freedom from 
COVID oppression or whatever the fuck it is they talk about. Um, yeah, maybe it's something to counter that. Maybe that's a better starting point. Can I? I mean, I'm old enough to remember when the poppy's black button in the middle that said Earl Hague on it, till he became not such a, a big draw, yeah. and then he, he was blanked out. So the, the reinvention of that, I kind of grown up with. Uh, but it strikes me that the question about veterans' organisations might look radically different if serving service personnel had an organisation that they belong to that could more kind of vocalise their concerns now. What, what about that, Joel? Veterans uh, unions for serving soldiers. Well, so we mean wh whether there was a union for serving soldiers that yeah. could do something for those enlisted yeah. people from marginalised communities who aren't the Sandringham, Sandhurst, yeah, yeah. Toffs. Like, yeah. we don't have that, but could we have it? And that would then change what veterans' organisations look like, I would think. Yeah. There's a, there's a bunch of stuff going on there. I try to keep a close eye on it. So there's, I know um, the last Labour manifesto had the idea of a federation in it, which I was like, well, sounds pretty good. With it, so a union without the right to strike was basically the idea, but there would be some kind of representation. And I don't think that, I'm not against that. Um, I think one interesting feature of the book is something called Fill Your Boots, which is weird, but bear with me. It's basically I've got an ex-paratrooper, a disgruntled ex-paratrooper called Alfie, who um, basically is trying to sell some insurance products where you compare your insurance and get it, uh, get it cheaper for like military insurance for your car. You get a discount because you're a squad or a sailor or whatever, or content insurance. And that's basically, while some people have been talking about some kind of unionization, a load of squaddies have actually kind of done it, but in a weird way, <laughs> and within the, the framework that's, that's allowed. So basically, it's this, a, face, uh, a couple of social media accounts called Fill Your Boots, with a massive following. Um, and they basically, if serving guys send this guy pictures of terrible food, or they'll send the WhatsApp, the squadron, what, or the troop WhatsApp group of some guy bullying someone, or some ridiculous, um, so in every unit there's standing orders, so it's the orders for the day and the week, what you have to do, and some of it's always ridiculously authoritarian and just divorced from reality, because officers write it. Um, and so they will get it and post it online, and then the military goes into crisis mode immediately because it's deeply concerned about optics. And then sometimes those things will change. Sometimes the military backs down. So in that way, there is a kind of unionisation happening, quite organically in a way. Yeah. And if you go and look at it, it is not, these people are not left, leftists. It's just a bunch of squaddies trying to like get back at the, the military ruling class. Um, and it's not always, some of it's pretty, it goes into some territory, you know, which would not be acceptable. It doesn't operate according to the mores and the language of the left. But there are veterans serving soldiers organising around it. Where that goes, I don't know. It could well be the case that it's kind of co-opted by the military. And I know Alfie's has interviewed senior military figures and stuff like that. There's almost a sense that the MOD has accepted it as a kind of vent that doesn't really go anywhere. Um, yeah, but that, I think that story is yet to play out. But there is clearly there is a, an urge for a fairer... Mm -hmm a fairer military, if you like, and people want to be kind of dignified in their workplace. I think most people accept that it's a tough lifestyle, 
that there will be physical demands and that on operations you're not going to be able to vote on what happens, but they just want to kind of have it be dignified in their jobs. So while some people out there, there's various organisations talking about some kind of federation, actually a load of, and they're working class squadies, they're not officers, they're just people anonymously posting shit that the military does. So there is something there. There is clearly a, a recognition that, that it would be good to have some kind of limited unionisation, at least in the military. How that will happen, I don't know. So this is partly, this involves, one of the characters in this might turn up, but his work drink started at one o'clock. So he might turn up <laughs> in the state. But it's also a reference to Spain, in a really weird way. Um, Scouse Trev, anonymised, is a former Royal Navy man. We share an eye for military absurdity. If there is a blindingly stupid new blazer meme, blazers are right-wing veterans, blazers and medals, etc., or a set of bespoke Sir Captain Tom trainers on the internet, <laughs> he will find it and launch it at me through WhatsApp. In the summer of 2020, he unearthed a prime new specimen. Enter Dean Cumberpatch, former guardsman and the East Midlands self-proclaimed Mad Viking. Trev had sent me a video of a big bearded veteran with tattoos on the sides of his skull, ranting about Antifa and the left. Over his shoulder, his Aryan-looking wife nods along supportingly, pulling dramatic faces into the webcam. <laughs> Around the same time, I was sent a flyer announcing a far-right political rally. I wasn't going to go, was it? <laughs> it features a Viking, axes in hand, striding slain-like across the battlefield. He was almost obscured by garishly coloured words, a date, a location, exhortations to defend the troops and stop the rape gangs an announcement that biker veterans are set to attend. It took me a while to realise that the Viking was the same man as the one in the video. Someone, him, had photoshopped his head onto the body of a Norse warrior. Rabbit-holing, I'd uncovered an article in the Midlands local press from a few years earlier in which Cumberpatch claims to be dying from exposure to depleted uranium during the first Gulf War and that he spent two years in one room of his house during the worst of his illness. What kept him going, he explains, was training his beloved Napoleon Mastiffs. His favourite, shown in the article, is a beautifully appointed grey monster named Franco. <laughs> <laughs> so there were some questions, I think, before we, we had a break, so... It was a call back to the whole COVID stuff you mentioned, and like, um... important I did um, so 2020 I did an article for declassified on this um, and the military loves it even calls good press is called good news we want good news it's like someone knocking on your door selling Bibles um, we're bringing you the good news and uh, my sense is 
from our research for that article is that the military looked at COVID as a massive opportunity. And there was an MOD, a senior MOD figure was tweeting about this and he was like, in crisis opportunity, and that was the, the view um, about COVID. And it was, there's a couple of um, strands to it. One of them was that COVID was a way to recalibrate the military's image post Iraq and Afghanistan. And definitely the military leapt on that, that we can have squaddies in the community doing good stuff and we can make us, it's almost like corporate social responsibility. And it's optics, it's like having the lads out there, the blokes, will look good, <laughs> will look good. And it did look good. Uh, but that certainly part of their rationale was about um, making themselves um, look useful and important again. Because Iraq and Afghanistan did a lot of damage internally into the way people, military people think about themselves, but also I think in terms of the public perception of what the military does. I mean, they survived it because the military is pretty Teflon, to be honest. Um, and the other strand to that, which is also really apparent during those first, that first year of COVID was recruiting and MP, MPs, serving MPs, uh, various, the Royal Marines official account and so on, rule tweeting out COVID's happening, rejoin or join. And they were calling for people who'd left to come back and be involved in the COVID response. Um, and uh, other people to join to be involved in the, the new war. And it was probably helpful that that was framed as kind of blitz spiritism. Like come and join the fight against the invisible enemy. And there was a, a not openly stated, but there was definitely an attempt to kind of conflate, to conflate COVID with the Luftwaffe. That, that this is a, some kind of tangible enemy rather than a virus. Um, but... Um, this is a battle, which this is a call to arms. People should join the military because we're centrally involved in that. And they were, to be honest, like I know guys who are still in who are involved in that. Involved a lot of guys in the Royal Logistics Corps, which is my old corps, which are not the sharpest bunch, definitely not the most glamorous corps um, in the army, the really large corps, or Rejects Last Chance, um, or really likes <laughs> cocaine, depending on which <laughs> RLC story you, you read about. Um, but yeah, a lot of dri like driving stuff around. Um, and definitely the military looked on it as an opportunity and probably they did there was some good work done I mean I don't contest that um, I think the fact that they had to use the army as they often do I mean every problem social problem now problems in prisons get the army in problems with schools get the army in it's become a kind of cure-all and that's based on wind basically the idea of the army is this kind of particularly moral institution which if we all were more army we would be better so there's a lot of stuff going on there um, but definitely the when COVID came along, the military looked at it, at it as an opportunity to kind of recalibrate its image and recruit, for sure. Just um, like a quick follow-up question. Um, <laughs> um, what was sort of like, I know you're not going to keep your favourite person on Milton, he's thinking of all to COVID and all that. What was sort of the general sort of attitude towards COVID amongst the military, amongst like the personnel serving the military? I would suggest they probably treated, they were probably really annoyed that they couldn't have block parties. Now, apparently one of the parties that came out was a load of military personnel who were involved in the COVID response. The lads got pissed up together <laughs> and that came out. It was kind of obviously overshadowed by the Downing Street party and all that. But there was like a block party of the guys who had been, I think they were sent to London um, to the centre of COVID, wherever they were based. Princess Barracks maybe, I don't know. Um, but yeah, it was probably, I mean, the thing in the military, you, when you join, you're kind of taught to offset, to like hand off your politics and your agency. Yeah. That's the creed. 
if you like. So they probably just looked at it as another thing to do. And in the last 20 years, from before I joined, there's been an increasing pattern of military involvement in like fire strikes. So they use the military as scab labor, um, foot and mouth, um, floods, and so on like that. It's probably, I always looked upon that kind of stuff. It's a better gig. It's better than being in Iraq in China. So it's probably a cushy number there, but it's probably also slightly irritating because you'll be, with COVID, you'll be kind of locked down in barracks and the, the concern about optics will be really high. So you have to behave yourself all the time. You can't really have a laugh publicly. Um, so yeah, I imagine it was a mix, a mix of feelings, to be honest. Yeah, it's just, it's a space that you sort of mentioned about how like, being a veteran is now an identity in itself, rather than being a left of being a veteran, a right of being a veteran. I'm just wondering, do you think that's going to affect the sort of like this current crop of like, in my view, like sort of cycle and feed you've got, you know, your Mark Francois, your, your Johnny Mercer's, your <laughs> Tom Blenkinsops, those sort of like yeah. cold eyed, like, day looking at the piano. I'm going to say, that's because. So what was the last bit, mate? I missed it. Sorry, it's just kind of a bit like being a veteran is now saying then it all for all the political identity and that you know, the crop of MPs who are veterans just kind of want the same, but it's just a particular problem with the ones we've got them on. Yeah, uh, there's, a lot, there's a lot going on there. It's really interesting. I write about it a lot. Um, yeah, Middleton and Mercer. <laughs> I think there's a, there's a sense... Swanee, Mer uh, Swanee Mercer, yeah. <laughs> there's, a, there's a sense that... A, um, it's kind of, I suppose it's, in one sense it's about hegemony. So there are... And this is what Haig said when they founded the British Legion. Haig's thoughts were get the men back under their officers. And the background was like revolution in Russia. Um, and that was kind of one of the founding ideas, values of the British Legion. I don't think it's in the Constitution, but that was Hague's notion. And people like Mercer, and to a lesser extent Middleton, because Middleton's a bit more erratic, um, are kind of leadership figures for veterans. He's not, he was an officer. Commando Partridge, as I call him, because he's hilarious. He's a hilarious caricature of a human being. Um, but him and other more serious figures are kind of, it's an offer of leadership. And Prince Harry as well, in a different way. It's an offer of leadership for military people to stop them getting ideas about their station because they're, they're looking up to the officers. Um, still, there was another part, it was about part veterans' identity, wasn't it? Yes. Yeah. It's a weird thing because if you go on the blazer groups, they are the people who will, anything they see which they can't compute, they're like, that's cultural Marxism, that's fucking this, that's that, that's identity politics. And veterans politics, mainstream veterans politics, blazer politics is the definition of identity <laughs> politics. It's not, because it's about a job. It's about a job you don't even do anymore. <laughs> it's like a thing you used to do, but your whole personality is based on this. So with particular generations of veterans, and I'll be honest, it's particularly, younger veterans do this well, but not, as well, but not in the same way. Particularly like Northern Ireland, Falklands era veterans are the most bitter, and their profile pictures are always like them as a young man in Derry or Amar or Tyrone. Um, uh, with a Northern Ireland, or it's a Northern Ireland medal, or it's a Knight Templar with 12 poppies <laughs> riding Aunt Middleton like a fucking horse. <laughs> <laughs> but um, yeah, there is, it has become an identity in and of itself. I suppose part of the critical veteran thing is to kind of wean people off that, to try to. Some of those people are clearly unreachable, 
and I'm not even going to attempt to to kind of speak to them. Um, but yeah, there's some powerful stuff, and there are reasons for that. There are reasons for it, which we can. I mean, it's funny. It's good to laugh at it because it's just fucking funny. But but also there are reasons that people internalise that to such a degree. It's because they've been trained. That's what happens in training. That that stuff is internalised. That day one, week one, they are like, "You're not a fucking civvy anymore," and that continues throughout. And you start to separate, and they capture it. It's really well, kind of captured in a lot of the blazer memes ex-military means like I'm not a civilian I'm ex-forces and it's a what we spoke to slightly earlier it's the idea of profound contempt for civilians where you come back and you're revolted by civilians revolted. we were talking about this um, that there's nothing worse that you could be than a civilian and you'll never go back to that because civilians are from day one you're trained they're like dithering they're effeminate they're ponderously slow they're weak um, and they're pathetic, and that's really deeply kind of um, internalised uh, as part of training, not just training, not just basic training, but military culture, by an immersion in military culture. And a lot of people's identity after that flows from the fact they were a veteran. I suspect a lot of those people of the, the older generation, the kind of boomer veterans, and don't get me wrong, there are some radical boomer veterans with great politics, like Ali, our friend Ali, um, but a lot of it kind of it's caught up with that stuff as well. With, with, it's, it's a generational thing. It's kind of generational thing playing out with it as well. But it's, they're deeply bitter and obsessed. And I, but I suspect they probably, until the new wave of militarism, kind of 2008 onwards, I suspect they probably themselves, in many cases, didn't think that much about being a veteran, which mm. is something they did. But all of a sudden, when the veteran is this figure who's hyped, who's elevated and put on a pedestal, when that happens, I suspect a lot of people suddenly realise that that's, maybe not even consciously, but come to the knowledge that that's a powerful identity which can be instrumentalised for kind of social capital, etc. So I think a lot of those guys who did like, you know, four years in Germany and never went anywhere, suddenly it's important that they did that. And it's never been in their life before the new wave of militarism. So there's a lot of um, complex identity stuff going on there. But I always come back to the fact that these... These people are always like, oh, it's identity politics. Anything like BLM, identity politics. Anything feminist, identity politics. And they're absolutely against identity politics, while at the same time doing like the, the weirdest kind of identity politics of all, about a job you don't do anymore. Um, yeah, and it's really deep-seated stuff. Internalised in, in training and, and just as part of the military experience. Just wanted to follow up on this, uh, what you're talking about. Um, in, in relation to gender, yeah. so you talk about like the, the way that you're trained to think about civilians as um, effeminate, and it seems like the, um, the ideal military as opposed to civilian, you know, like whereas the civilian is, is dithering, is effeminate, is you know, indecisive, is wet, mm -hmm. the, you know, the ideal military type is cold, clear-eyed, courageous, yeah. um, as well in like a situation of stress or whatever um, and that's it's a really good bit in the book where you describe like what civilians are like in the eyes of, yeah. of veterans I'm like oh yeah I'm like that <laughs> <laughs> um, but, uh, but but it seems like those like uh, mass those like military ideal that ideal military type is an ideal masculine type as well right yeah. so um, and like you are constantly talking about the lads you know, yeah, yeah. The, the guys what are in relation to the military. So to, to what extent, we're talking about like the relationship of the military to wider society. To what extent is the, are we talking about 
your masculinity really or like yeah, yeah. i mean it's a huge it's a military masculine i mean the book in a sense is kind of about military masculinity i wanted to have women's voices as well but i was conscious of like ventriloquizing because women's experience i think in the military is very different and i've had it described to me but as a constant environment of sexual threat and that's how various you know ex-military women describe it to me um and i I would have done it if I could get... So the military, I can't remember the rates, it's something like 20% of the military is women. And I didn't want to, unless I could represent that in the book, I didn't want to do that, so I didn't do it in the end. Um, but yeah, the whole thing is about this kind of masculine military ideal. Um, and it's, I suppose the, the key thing about it is it's massively like, it's also not fucking true day to day. Like people constantly panic in the military and flap. We call them flappers. But it, the idea of it, the notion of it, is so deeply internalised that it kind of follows you out into civilian life. And I'll be honest, I still do it. I still do it as someone who's on the left. I still am like, why are people so fucking... Ask Jess, Jess is smiling. <laughs> I'm still like, why are people so fucking slow? Why are people so ponderous? Like, it's, it's that deep-seated. Like you can read as much other stuff as you want, but it will still be there. And it's a, it's a, a common thing that, um, that civil, things civilians do and the way they operate are kind of a bit feminine a bit soft and not what we do and that's the fact we don't do it separates it makes us better and I can't describe adequately in the time we have how deep-seated that is where it's still a thing personally and for lots of other veterans on the left as well it's something we have to we talk about increasingly but we have to kind of work through and um, there's also another way that that expresses so part of the book is about one of the the kind of part of the animus of really right-wing veterans is, as it has always been, the dolstos, the stab-in-the-back theory, and a lot of stuff around legacy allegations in Ireland about Iraq and Afghanistan is about the fact, we've, the idea, not the fact, the idea that we've been stabbed in the back and betrayed. And it's never entirely clear who's done it, but very often it's um, formulated as Tony Blair, which I'm kind of down with. Um, <laughs> but, but that idea that these liberal, effete politicians have stabbed us in the back is a major animus for really right for blazers for really right wing veterans, and when you look at it as I do in the book, <clears throat> you can kind of there's a brilliant scholar, I've got his fucking name now. I think look in there, um, Jerry Lemka, who's a Vietnam veteran and a sociologist, American guy, um, and he talks about um, he go he kind of traces this really interesting narrative. So he talks about um, post Vietnam. There was this, I mean let's face it, most veterans post Vietnam are on the streets protesting the war or in during Vietnam. But he traces it back um, from the kind of Reaganite fantasy of the hippies, a feminine mm. figure, the long mm. hair, betraying our veterans. Because they couldn't accept, the American psyche, the American ruling class fundamentally couldn't accept that they'd lost to these little brown people. And so they had to make up this fantasy of betrayal from within. It had to be the enemy within. But he traces it back to the American Civil War, the foundation of the Ku Klux Klan, Confederate soldiers mm. who felt betrayed. Um, he talks about the French in Indochina, the French in Algeria, and the Fry Corps, Ger German soldiers coming back from the First World War, and the idea, this, there's this image, this kind of meme, I suppose, which is conjured of the, the brave soldiers come back from the First World War, <coughs> and uh, women, it's always women, come out and rip off their medals. And actually, he, traces, he looks at it in the historical, and actually it was like left-wing soldiers um, ripping the insignia off their officers, but it's, it was reformulated by the far right. Um, in Germany. And he talks about all these different permutations. I mean, even in Vietnam, the key thing is the, 
this, there's a, Jerry wrote a book called The Spit and Image, and it's the idea, completely unsupported by fact, that people came back from Vietnam and they were spat on by hippies uh, and women. And he goes into this like really interesting argument and it's like the fact that they're either hippies or women, it doesn't matter, they're long-haired and they're feminine. So it's about, it's an affront to masculinity and national, the kind of national masculinity. But also the fact it's spitting is this really deep-seated thing. It's like women and fluids mm -hmm. and a particular kind of betrayal and a kind of rot in the body politic of a nation-state mm -hmm. and goes far deeper than I do in the book, but I, I address it a little. Um, and so he runs through um, just general military culture, but also the, the, the kind of stab-in-the-back theories which have emerged in various wars and our wars as well. I mean, you see this stuff now with veterans on the far right talking about betrayal and lefties and cultural Marxism and all this weird shit, which I suspect they don't really understand themselves, but they have deeply internalised and they really believe and they are expressing. Um, so yeah, I mean, the masculinity thing runs deep, really deep. So, uh, the conversation is moving a lot around a lot, but I'm just going to lean in to going back to something. Um, I, I just think it's, I'm not asking you to speak to the British state, but I just think it's really important that it's not just the Mercers and the Tories and the like, right wing of the British state, like, I had to take notes because I don't want to forget what I said, but um, Labour is actually been attacking the Tories from the right. So here Starmer was actually attacking the Tories from the right in terms of their amnesties for soldiers bill wasn't strong enough. And Charlotte Nichols is really, really vocal on that, and I understand that she's like, you know, them for Warrington and, and the legacy of the bomb there, but, you know, she's actually reading them to this kind of militarism, she's doing that MP militarism. Um, but we also had Angela Rayner, who's, by all accounts, you know, otherwise tangentially positioning herself as a left-wing candidate. But she called, <laughs> she called Sinn Féin IRA, I haven't heard that since the 1990s, she called Sinn Féin IRA these talks, like criticising Corbyn for entering on the talks with the IRA whenever she mentioned Féin during a time of peace. I think that that's not really talked about, it's very easy to memeify the Mercers, but actually yeah, yeah, yeah. we have the so-called centrist or left of the Labour Party during this. But I think it's easy um, to assume because it, it basically kind of did go on to this, it definitely go on to this for me uh, and for all the Irish people. Um, but you, you also very casually said our friend Ali, I think it's probably worth briefly talking about the present of whenever troops, uh, former troops in the North Verde set up a movement called Troops Like Movement, they called it Britain's Vietnam, there's a huge movement in Britain so as a president. Uh, but I just, I just want to say, because Dan said something that reminded me, and this is just an anecdote, it'll be really quick. I ran the Liverpool Half Marathon two years ago, I'd never run more than 5k in my life, and I vomited as I crossed the picket line. And I realised it's the military handing out a t-shirt, so I ran an extra 500 metres because I vomit to avoid the military. And really? a t-shirt over my head, and then like passed out 500 metres beyond the, the, the library. Yeah, there is a normalisation of like veterans doing good in the community, but yeah, I'll yeah. still die on the docks covered in vomit, so I normalise on that. But, so yeah, the two points where the Labour Party is, they were the ones who sent the troops in, there's a huge amount of kind of whitewashing around the Labour Party's rule. But particularly because the Labour youth are, are actually so radical, they're good on Palestine, they're good on Cuba, there's just a huge blind spot on Ireland. But when it comes to Angela Rayner saying, check in IRA, it's like, oh my god, it's like listening to Ian Paisley, it's that right mm, yeah, yeah. Um, But yeah, talk a bit more about Ali, because I think that's a huge, uh, significant precedent in Britain. Yeah, 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 there's a lot there, a lot of interesting stuff. Um, 
on the I think le the problem with Labour one of the problems. We've only got half an hour left, Joe. <laughs> one, one of the problems, I'll be brief, one of the problems is it doesn't, like, the Tories have organic connections to the military and Labour does. There are a couple of people like Clive Lewis, TA, I mean that's fine, but you know, he did his three month tour or whatever um, as part of a combat, a propaganda team, fair. Um, but then like Dan Jarvis, who's a paratrooper, uh, there, there are very few. What's that? Charlie did a for the Memorial Service. Well, that's, I mean, that's the other thing is <clears throat> they don't have the same connections as the Tories. So there's a thing called the Armed Forces Parliamentary Scheme, which I would call, I call it the Armed Forces Walting Scheme. Walting is what is stolen valour in the US, where you pretend to be a soldier. So MPs go and they like, you remember the images of Liz Kendall on top of the tank? <laughs> so trying to look with badly ill-fitting combat and various, but that's very that scheme is particularly subscribed to. I wrote a piece for it um, about it for Forces Watch by basically centrist and right-wing Labour MPs because they don't have the same connection. So you see Stephen Morgan like shooting a fucking machine gun down the range or whatever. Um, so that's part of the problem is that they don't have. And rather than like developing a different kind of connection, like with uh, let's have a union for veteran uh, military people. That's a good connection to me. Um, they, I think they try and do the same thing as the Tories. Um, so that's the thing there. But yeah, the troops out movement stuff is really good. Ali Rennick is a fascinating guy who's in the army. Um, he was with, he was in um, uh, some, like, an unheard of tour. He was in like Cambodia in the 60s, building airfields. He was in the Royal Engineers, ahead of Vietnam. So he's building airfields for Americans before Vietnam kicked off. Um, and another guy, Walter Eaton, who was, um, he was in Malaya. Walter, um, who's a fantastic character from Hull, um, who was, as a boy soldier, he was 17, they sent him to Malaya. Um, uh, and he was, in the he was in the guards, and he was in the next valley from a massacre, they call it the British Mylai, um, in Batankali, a little village called Batankali, where they just massacred all the villagers, the British Army did. Uh, but the, both of those guys ended up in the Troops Out movement, which is really interesting. And we kind of, particularly Maven Alley, but... I'm around it in moral support. Uh, I saw now the archive of the Troops Out movement, which is a really interesting movement. It wasn't all veterans, but veterans was, Ali was a founding member, I think, and Walter was very involved. So it's a good example of, oh, where do you hear about that? Have you ever heard about that before? Maybe not. Yeah. I only know it from Ali, but that was a thing and the veterans were involved in it. And it's a good example of veterans being openly anti-colonialist. Like, yeah. And when you speak to those guys, as I have many times, part of the, their motivation is their experiences. Their experiences in wartime and operations made them anti-imperialists. And it can go the other way, and it can make you an even more ardent imperialist. I know, you know there are plenty of people like that. But I think the Troops Out movement is a good example of people going to war, coming back, thinking about their politics, and, and taking a particular left-wing position on it. And it, it does happen a lot. It's not unusual. I think part of the one of the things in the book is to say, look, it's not, this isn't new. We shouldn't be shocked when someone says they're a veteran or an anarchist or a communist or a socialist or a social democrat or whatever. It's absolutely normal and healthy, I would venture, to be a veteran on the left. And you should be. And if you're a working class veteran, you should be on the left. However you devise that, that is where you belong. I don't know why you're siding with um, Swanee fucking Mercer and his class. Like, think about your own class composition. I apologise in advance for if you can cover this in one of your books and that. Um, but that it, I've got a, there's, there's an anecdote from, from today that, that, that I was working with, with an app 
from a good lad from Irish uh, background and that and he, he was saying that he used to work in a bar, he was the DJ there and they got took over by the owners and that and he, he didn't dispute with them and the new owners had, it, 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 but the last, it was the last thing, was he going to go back with them, was he not? And he introduced this 25% uh, discount from those investments and that and, and, and for him as, as an Irish lads, it, it was an Irish bar but he, like, at that point he knew it was like no, this is just like, like, like that was that, that was a that was a thing clash with it, with his identity where where he was from and that like, the part of the thing that you provide and that which is something that doesn't sort of get much veneering is the idea of how the left can sort of tackle because when you come from the sort of a background of anti war almost it's well, why would anyone go and stop that? Like why, why would anyone do that? And, but not everyone comes from that, and there's lots of material reasons why someone won't go as as well as been covered. But as has been talked about tonight, the, the, the idea of description, how how massively has that changed the culture of um, sort of the composition of the armed forces? In that, like when you talk about sort of what what the perception is of and consent and things like that what what makes someone join the army does it get the bit of consent of like well we kind of know that it's not as simple as saying well, you choose to join the army there's lots of other things that's sort of push into it but the, the idea of choice whether it's false or not the, the, the that that person themselves at some point has gone yeah right, i'll do that and so this so, so that i think that that bit of it whether it's whether it's a real choice, whether they've, they've been whether they've been sort of tricked isn't the right way, but like sort of funneled down that path, and that's that's the path that you're supposed to go. Does that that, that the to what extent does that create a different culture within the army itself to the point where because they've chosen to be there, they've chose they 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 choosing to forego their own opinions. Whereas with conscription, there was an idea that because I have to be there, they couldn't, not that they couldn't force, not that couldn't force you to lose your political opinions, but that you, you, because while you were there, I'm sure it was, I'm sure, I'm sure you still had the same pressure that you do if you, if you choose to be there. But there's, there's, there's probably, a, there's, there's probably a more overt sort of pressure on you. To be like you chose to be here, you you, yeah. you know you signed up for you 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 forfeited your rights almost. Whereas with scriptures like no, you have to be here, and you can push back against that a little bit more almost. Yeah, it's a good question. Um, I guess what I always come back to is whether you're conscripted or you're professional. Once you're in, you're in, and you're subject to that. I mean, there's no fundamental difference once you're under the military um, regime. Definitely in a professional army, and this is my experience. Um, they, in training, for example, as motivation, they'll be like, you've volunteered to come here. Mm. And it does, like, I think professional armies are more reactionary, which is not an argument for mass conscription. <laughs> like, occasionally, like Dan Jobs will be like, oh, we should all fucking, we should have conscription back. Um, but yeah, there's, there's a couple of different things going on there. Um, man, that's a big question, eh? <laughs> I'll come, at, I suppose some of the, some of the Irish stuff, like, it's in, like, when I think about what I'm gonna write next, um, so there's a bunch of guys I interviewed here um, who identify as Republicans and are Irish diaspora. And that's interesting to me that they ended up anyway, a lot of them are Scousers, actually, who only through the experience of the military came to that 
position, or some of them kind of went in like that, but he kind of survived the process. So it's interesting that, I suppose if it's a question about putting your politics aside, I don't think people really do, but you might bury it to some extent. And I really feel, there's a couple of guys I interviewed, there's one from the reddest of the red Welsh valleys, Taff, inevitably, he introduced himself <laughs> as that, introduced, I'm allowed to say that, he introduced himself as that, who grew up, um, who's kind of in his 40s now, who did 18 years, and was always a socialist. Um, and because that was his background, he never met a Tory till he was 18 and joined the army, and he was an officer, because he lived, grew up in Rhonda, and there aren't many Tories kicking around. Um, so there's a question about, I suppose, how politics how you kind of bury your politics for a while, or if you do, while you're in the military, and to what degree people actually... Obviously, you say when you sign up, you have to give the oath to the Queen or whatever, but whether you actually mean it or not, I suppose. And there's a lot of people, there's a lot of people like that, um, who's either buried their politics or just held them slightly more quietly um, or put them aside for a while um, while they were in and then took it up again when they were out. But yeah, it's an interesting question, I suppose, about agency, politics and whatnot. Yes, Can I speak to that? Uh, I was had a brief conversation in our, our interval uh, about my brother. My brother, my eldest brother was called Paul. He signed up in 1970 for a six-year term in the Ordnance Corps. And uh, I think he probably flourished better in the army than he, he did outside. It, it worked for him, in a manner of speaking. Now our background is working class Catholic in an ex-cotton town. So our politics was always on the left. But there wasn't a contradiction there. He did two tours in Northern Ireland and then he came to the end of his six years and they said, well if you sign up again, we'll give you some corporal stripes, but you'll be going back. And he said, no I won't. Those two tours for him crystallised the thing about identity and politics, I think. Then he stepped back, and he didn't sign up, and he never went back to Northern Ireland. But I don't think he would have reached that if he hadn't done those yeah. two tours. Uh, so I think it's powerful what you, what you said about the reasons that you join, and then what you find when you're in, yeah. sufficient to, to grapple with that and think, this far and no further than that. Yeah. But also, I mean, going back and going back to where we started quite early on about thinking about people joining, you know, you know like, if I think about myself when I was 16, 17, like, I didn't have any good politics then or whatever. Like, I could have, I don't think that, that we should be too critical of, of men, young men, young women, mm -hmm. 16, 17, and thinking about why haven't you got this, you know, wider perspective on these things and maybe it does take being taken you know to an environment when you actually see what the british state is actually doing that, that forms that politics you know from that perspective yeah definitely i think it's, it's an argument i run into a lot among others from right-wing veterans like you knew what you were signing up for it's actually like i'm a journalist now yeah i didn't really know in a meaningful way what it was like to be a journalist before i became a journalist i didn't like have an experience of it and it's kind of the same. I think that argument, which is very a very kind of cheap argument, kind of assumes all kinds of things about your your knowledge of the world. But it's about like people who are generally very young, and often uh, under all kinds of different kind of, you know pressures, um, generally working class, 
and it's making all kinds of assumptions about the knowledge they should have almost. It's almost like a crap gotcha. Like, oh, you know. You know and it, but it's commonly rolled out, and it's, I get it's also part of, it's a product of immersion in training and culture that the military kind of self-polices from basic training, like if anyone fucks up, you're all punished. And so anyone that kind of steps slightly outside a particular framework uh, is jumped on by everybody. And that's trained in from, from early on, I think. Blanket punishment is a thing, so it's reinforced and reinforced um, again. But yeah, it's an, I mean, the other argument I run, of course, is even funnier is, uh, so you don't agree with the war, um, are you going to give back your pension then? Which is, first of all, basically a complete misunderstanding of what a pension is. Yeah. <laughs> so I understand it's like a bit of your work wage which is deferred until you're old and knackered, basically. Yeah. Um, but it's, uh, and it's, a, it's a weird dynamic because it fundamentally assumes that like, your pension is like, um, I think in the book, it's like a, it's like a royal non-disclosure agreement. Like yeah. You sign up, swear fealty to the Queen, and then you can never slag her off or her army. <laughs> um, or you have to give your pension back. And first of all, you're like, who the fuck are you? Yeah. <laughs> so, like, also, it's, it's, really, it's this really deep-seated... It, it kind of says more about the person saying it than about, oh, yeah. about you, the idea that... Oh, give your, like, prove to me that you really don't believe in the war. <laughs> give your pension back. I think they took mine off me at court martial, so I don't really care. But I always like to entertain the argument, because it's funny, to be like, that's not what a pension is, mate. <laughs> <laughs> You've misunderstood. <laughs> so you described the very intentional internal culture um, and, and something on I had um, one of the typical breakfast discussion TV programs on this morning when I was on the laptop and you're not the Ministry of Defence using more woke, that's how you described it, more woke language recruitment. and I vaguely remember a uh, discussions or a campaign or report or something about the army doing the same about two years ago um, and I just wondered your thoughts on that clear conflict of what the saying, do you want to reach out to? Yeah. Actually, what the internal culture is? Yeah, I, I, and I know people are still in. I'm pretty sure the army isn't woke. Um, <laughs> even now, even now. But you're exactly right because that's it's become it's it's kind of it's culture war stuff, isn't it? Like some people are like, um, yeah, we need a fairer army or whatever. They don't do anything fundamentally. Like if you're a, you know, we let's have a fairer army. Let's have a union. But then they'll be like, no, 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 it's too much. Kind of people talking about politics and shit in the army, uh, but mostly I, I, my reading is, having looked at this for ten years, is that it's kind of a veneer. The military is like still way back in the past. Internally, the internal culture is from another era, entirely. But there is a pressure from outside to kind of update, and you see that expressed um, through um, the idea. I mean, one of the talking the, the buzz points recently is. Um, uh, more diversity will make us more lethal. That's literally, that's literally what they say. And more diversity will make us more effective as a fighting force. And it's, but it's just stuff that's kind of stuck on the outside. It's, it's particularly pronounced recently with the... Um, there's been a series of reports about um, women's experience in the military, about sexual harassment, sexual violence, and so on, which is a far higher rate um, than in civilian life, which you can imagine is fucking a really high rate. <laughs> Um, and there was even a bill, they tried to put it in the bill, um, that basically as it stands at the moment, um, this is a reflection of the army and also just mainstream politics, is that um, colonels of regiments could themselves rule on rape cases. So it wouldn't go to a civilian court, it would just be a colonel 
like Tarquin, Voldemort, Gandalf, fucking <laughs> could just a rape case allegation would come in front of him and he could go, what they would do is try and talk the woman down to battery and say it's battery and then he could just deal with it and go, uh, he gets a slap on the wrist and we all crack on. And the idea is that it would be automatically in serious crimes it would be transferred to the civilian courts. And this is a thing that's just playing out at the moment. And there was a, it was part of the armed forces bill and um, lots of people, in fact, a couple of Tories led up on it and when it came to the vote, they, it was, it got patented, like it didn't pass because it was too much of an incursion on mili the military's internal power over its own workforce or whatever. But then at the same time, this, the kind of woke, woke, if you like, stuff, this kind of liberal veneer is being attached to the military. And it find, the argument fundamentally, it ends up being, um, being more diverse makes us more deadly. And you can go back and look at the reports about this. This is the argument that's put um, uh, around that stuff, yeah. It's weird, it's fucking bizarre. <laughs> yeah, so I, I found the, um, what was the German phrase used for the betrayal after World War One? Dolstos. Dolstos. Yeah. So, yeah, because like, all these freaks that you were talking about before, like the guy from the East Midlands dressed up as a Viking, like, <laughs> that sort of stuff. Like, yeah. <laughs> so like, you know, like Viking tattoos and ginger ponytails and that, like they, I mean, you describe like right-wing veterans as blazers, and, like these to me, like that doesn't seem like an apt word for these freaks. You know what I mean? And like, are these are these particular like you know people who are like basically soft, you know, Nazis basically? Are these radicalised by the failures of Iraq and Afghanistan? Because you said that like the internal culture was. Effective. I, 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 I never noticed that before until you'd mentioned it. Like, I, I wouldn't have thought that internal yeah. military culture was like, had some shame about it because of those. Yeah, it's, I think some of that stuff, there's a passage in the book about, it's called Walting as a, Walting as a Viking. And it's about like vicariously living your life as a Viking or a Spartan or whatever, um, when actually you're like a bloke from Leicester who's a telecoms engineer who did four years as a clerk in the Navy or whatever. <laughs> um, but some of, that's, I think it's common to all those, the right-wing veterans movements, is that there's a kind of, the world now isn't moral enough. It's not black and white enough. And we need to go back to some fantasized past where men were men and everything was morally clear, this kind of revanchist. So I think that's part of it. I wouldn't describe, the Blazers are a really diverse bunch. I definitely wouldn't describe them all as fascists, to be honest. I think some people are just generally attached to going out with the lads I used to serve with and mm. having a few beers and telling some shit dits, like stories um, about, you know, some shit war stories and just having a laugh. Um, some of them are, clearly. I mean, some of them are like that. But the Blazers so-called in the book are actually a really diverse group again it's not about i'm quite like I, it's actually quite a strong look i quite like the blazer look and it's quite right for subversion like i've worn it because you can turn up and just people take you really seriously in a way that's completely undeserved because you're like a massive fucking anarchist or whatever um uh so it's not the signifiers but some of the stuff behind it the stuff behind it actually varies a lot they're just guys who like to hang out at the british legion with you know, they make Ken, who they were in Armagh with in 1972. Mm. Um, and there are some other variants which are much more... Uh, the Dean Cumberbatch, this guy. But Dean, the, the mad Viking guy is really interesting. Because 
his story emerged while I was writing the book. And he actually straddles a couple of different topics because there's a chapter on being a Walt, on stolen valour, on pretending. And the guy turned up, allegedly, he was previously, he was never in the SAS, but he turned up at a Nottingham Forest football match in an SAS berry with medals. And he was, this year he won Walt of the Year, the Walt of the Year award, because he was like pretending to be something he's not. Um, but then he's also clearly, he's kind of vanished because um, the Walter Mitty Hunting Club published this article exposing him, basically. But he, yeah, he's, he's an interesting character. But I would, I always maintain, like, it's funny to rip him, and I do rip him a lot, but it's actually, mainstream veteran identity is a broad church. And there's lots of stuff going on there. In fact, the guy who came up with the term um, is um, a fascinating character, Steve, who's, who's in the Guards, won a military medal in Northern Ireland for valour, whatever that constitutes that. Um, who was like a, came out of the army and was a nightclub bouncer and a bodyguard to like Dave Courtney and all these East End gangsters. Mm. Uh, but he came up with the term because we were looking for a, how do we describe mm. the other side. We were trying to formulate our own identity and we were like, we went through all these permutations. What we were looking for was like um, uh, a kind of Uncle Tom figure, like a person who like sides with his own oppression in a sense. And we avoided that because we didn't want a, a bunch of white blokes hijacking the language of black liberationism. But we settled on blazer because they signifies. But actually the guy who came up with it is like a boomer veteran who was in Northern Ireland. If you met him, you would think he's right wing, but actually he's like some kind of communist. Yeah. yeah. So it's a broad church, is what I'm getting at. Do you know if there's a Norse word for pretending to be a Viking? This guy sounds like he's really. really need to know that. Nailed. Yeah. yeah. Or a Spartan, like an ancient Greek. Yeah. Because they love Spartans, don't That's the other big thing. Spartans. Yeah, that's a British Empire thing. Vikings. Well. Or Templars, Knights Templars. Yeah. Okay. And I'm just like, mate, you're not a Knights Templar. Like, you work in a bar. <laughs> you're in the RLC, you're like a blanket stacker like me. Um, so obviously you talk about military class space and I'm bringing you up to you a bit and you were chatting earlier on how um, you've got a lot of working class kids that go in and, and internalise this, this culture. And I think obviously we've spoken about how um, the left quite unhelpfully portray, often parts of the left portray the military as this you know, racist institution. And we've had conversations before, Joe, about how actually we see people that go into the military with semi-left, semi-good politics and then find themselves coming out. They go in with this hope of making a difference, whatever that means yeah, in, yeah. in their circumstances, whether it's material or ideological or whatever, and then they come out and they're actually kind of radicalised on the way out of defending their position and saying, I'm not a murderer, I did it for the, mm. for, for the great good. And I guess like we all obviously you know, think about the politics of hope and towards that and I guess my question would be and it's a big one to answer it but like how do we penetrate that space where we've got people that are almost in, internalising that to a point where they're saying they're taking that what we would see as like a right standpoint of saying well I'm not a murderer therefore I'm going to support the military absolutely yeah. no end where they wouldn't actually support that institution but they're individualising it and saying well, no, I'm not a murderer and I did it for the right reasons. Mm -hmm. Like, how do we detach that? Because I think the very broad conversation on the left of like, oh, okay, well, the institution is terrible. That yeah. makes people then kick back in a way that we wouldn't want them to and then it becomes a very polarised situation. Yeah, yeah. Does that make sense? No, it does make sense. Um, yeah, it's tough, isn't it? I, I think what you're speaking of, we've spoken about it before, I know you had a relative who's, who's in the military, um, is and I speak about it in the book, is moral injury. Uh, moral injury is like a new emerging category of military mental health. It's not just military, it's basically when you're um, 
it's not like PTSD though it sometimes look like PTSD, it looks like PTSD. It's when your values have been punctured, when you've believed something and you've been betrayed from above or you've been forced to do something in the context of your job, which then your sense of yourself kind of fractures. And it's much more, they're further down the line in the States than we are here. The British military medical establishment is really fucking backwards. Um, but, I mean, civilian examples would be like, lots of nurses in COVID had to watch people die and couldn't do anything. And that affected them. But that's not PTSD. The idea is it's moral injury, which is something else. And the treatment for that, I interview a bunch of guys about, um, about the mental health stuff and the effects of military training and culture, is empathy-based treatment. Like, you know, you're not treating it like PTSD. You're talking to these people and kind of working it out as a back and forth. And people can recover from it. But it's possible that you can... Um, come back from it. And there was another part to the question, wasn't there? Totally lost track. How we like penetrate that space of yeah, I, getting to those people without them, you know, yeah, yeah, like yeah. radical empathy. No, exactly. Like that, I find, I slate them a lot in the book, but I wouldn't want to over-egg. There are sections of the left who are shit, who don't, I'll be frank, who think it's funny to kind of squatty bash. And I will accept that from some people, personally. I'll accept it from like, um, there is a critique of the military. No, I would accept it from, pe from people whose communities have been occupied by the British Army. But I have sympathy for that if it's coming from people from an Irish Republican background. Um, but there are other sections where they're kind of, kind of faux anti-imperialists um, who are like, you're basically cops, which is a really bad analysis of what military people are. Because the, the police and the military, on a, in a really shallow way, like they're both instruments of state violence, maybe you could formulate that. But when you really look at it, like, if you go out in town in Liverpool, you will not find anyone in a doorway holding a fucking sign saying homeless ex-copper. But you will find veterans who do that because their relationship of ex-military people to capitalism in the state is very different. Um, and I, so I will accept some critiques of that. I would, the people who really go for it are like faux anti-imperialists or bouge. It's fucking the bouge left. I'm like, ha, oh, ha, like, no, you, your only option was to join the army and I will never take any flack from the posh left, ever. It's not what we do. Yes. I've just got rid of one officer class. Not <laughs> tolerate another one, to be honest. So, but you have to be new. Like, so I would accept that you know, there are reasons some people, legitimate reasons some people have an issue, are suspicious of ex-military people, and it's legit. Like, I understand that. If you're an Iraqi, an Afghan, if you're from Ireland, fair play. Like, I understand that dynamic. And we, and we do talk about it, talk about it with Mabel all the time. Maybe from Derry, you know, she, this is part of her composition um, but I'm very selective about who I will take that shit off so it's really but I also know working class lefties and others as well it's not just but who maybe it's very common on the left that people are like oh uncle Bob was in Ireland cousin Jerry was in Iraq and so on who do have a more of a working understanding of the drivers of the military of what makes people join the military and how the military works and I don't I think part of it's a class problem like I don't really find that from working class lefties and just good lefties. Um, I find it from Bouge, kind of pseudo-anti-imperialists, and <laughs> it, it really grips my shit, to use the military term. It really gets <laughs> And I just won't tolerate it. To be I'm not going to have working class people spoken to, spoken down to by the Bouge. We're in charge now. <laughs> so, um, one more question? Yeah. Uh, it's sort of like why you're doing another show. I mean, it's a bit of a comment on my back to you. 
Hi. My own favorite stage, like I joined uh, the cadets. I, I was a I was a child soldier a bit when I was like 12, 13. Yeah. Same, yeah. And I literally did it because I was a little bit long, like I wanted to make some friends. The Sally sent them and then I became a child soldier to make friends. But um the question is sort of like talking about like I mean, do you think if I think about like Australia in the seventies, they had like a big sense of inadequacy. Like not only did we have good enough, you know, compared to Britain, do you think that like British veteran politics has that similar sort of like cultural cringe where it thinks less of it thinks like it it's not as strong or not as like prevalent prevalent as in like America or in like, you know, Europe sort of reactionary core. Do you think that plays effect into how like British veteran politics acts? Yeah, I don't know. I think British veteranhood, the mainstream British veteranhood, thinks it's the absolute shit, to be honest. And that's a problem because we've lost all our recent wars. Um, yeah, I think maybe more now people are conscious, not in a way that they cringe, but people are conscious that we're like second fiddle to the States. But there's a huge, I mean, it's the Anglosphere, there's a huge crossover between weird, weird American veteran shit, like racist coffee the racist coffee company <laughs> and like all this kind of influencer shit mm. and British stuff as well. Partly because we've spent 20 years alongside each other occupying various countries, but also because it's just easily, I mean, it's the same language it comes across, which is why you get Middleton's kind of a budget Poundland version of Jocko Willink and yeah. Davy Goggins and all these, these people. Um, yeah, I mean, there were some deeply cringe aspects about it, but I think most people who really invest in a military identity. I mean, because that's what you, whatever you're in, you could be in the shittest unit ever in the army and you would believe, you would be told from day one that you were the best ever. I mean, it's just part and parcel. Um, so they don't, it's not like they have a confidence problem. They are cringe uh, at times. But it's, it's just a product of military training that you think you're awesome <laughs> to some degree. Whatever the evidence, in the face of the evidence. Um, and that's also something we talk about with um, with other critical veterans. We talk about how to like negotiate that stuff. And I suppose what, what I'm trying to argue in the book is that the military can be, as it has been for many other generations, the military can be something you've done. It doesn't have to be something you are forever. It's not like this fixed, rigid, um, immovable identity and everything about you flows from it. I think that's a problem and it speaks to broader problems about, I mean, in the book I talk about working class identity, where if everything you know has been chiselled away by neoliberalism or whatever, um, if the communities you're from have been smashed um, and the country's really right-wing and it's obsessed with its imperial nostalgic kind of sense of itself, then being a veteran all of a sudden is a really powerful identity. If that's all you have. Um, and I think that's the problem with some of those people. I think we're... Uh, and then, no, sorry, we've got one more. Just one thing you touched upon at the beginning. Um, the Italian Goths. <laughs> um, Is that you? What, what, what happened to them and how are they going to be involved in the struggle to move yeah. forward? We tried to get them, we tried to get them involved, Dan, mate, but um, they were like off their faces and doing mad dancing. And at that particular house party, then me and my mate, who's, who's a pads brat, whose dad is in the army, they had their own room and we went upstairs and it was like the weirdest thing. They were all just stood there looking extremely sultry and um, just doing weird dancing. I don't know, it's a work in progress. It's a work in progress to get them on board, on board the struggle. Um, and that will be the topic of my next book. Okay. <laughs> <laughs>
We're going to call it a day then? I think so. Jim's yeah. done a runner, he's gone. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks for listening. You can keep in touch with the podcast via email, abcwithdannyandjim at gmail.com and Facebook, Twitter and Instagram, all at abcdannyandjim. You can subscribe to our newsletter on abcwithdannyandjim.substack.com. The podcast music is Stealing Orchestra and Rafael Dinosio, Gente de Miñaterra. The podcast logo is an adapted version of the Left Book Club logo. And the image in this episode is the fantastic cover art of Joe's book, designed by Johnny Bull. Love and solidarity. Until next time. Book Club with Danny Evans and me, Jim Yeoman. In this episode, we are joined by Arturo Zofman Rodriguez of the Universidade Nova de Lisboa in Portugal. Arturo's work focuses on the transnational and comparative history of revolutions and radical ideas, with a particular focus on Russia and the Hispanic world. Our discussion focuses on Arturo's studies on the impact of the Russian Revolution of 1917 on anarchist movements around the world, focusing particularly on the CNT in Spain, which can be found in the publications Revolutionary Russia and the European History Quarterly. A link to a more comprehensive bibliography of Arturo's work can be found in the notes to this show. This was a fascinating and lively chat with an exciting young scholar, which we both thoroughly enjoyed. Arturo is currently transforming his PhD thesis which centres on the subjects we cover in this episode, into a book, and we look forward to seeing this come out in the near future. Thanks for listening. You can keep in touch with the podcast via email, abcwithdannyandjim at gmail.com, and Facebook, Twitter and Instagram, all at abcdannyandjim. You can subscribe to our newsletter at abcwithdannyandjim.substack.com The podcast music is Stealing Orchestra and Rafael Dinosil, Gente de Miña Terra. The podcast logo is an adapted version of the Left Book Club logo. And the image in this episode is a Spanish campesino 
brandishing a hammer and sickle, taken in Aragon in the early stages of the Spanish Civil War in 1936. Love and solidarity. Until next time.